The Cardboard Box by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, dramatised by Grant Eustace, with Roy Marsden as Sherlock Holmes and John Moffat as Dr. Watson. It was a blazing hot day in August. Baker Street was like an oven, and the glare of sunlight upon the brickwork of the house across the road was painful to the eye. It was hard to believe that these were the same walls which loomed so gloomily through the fogs of winter. My term of service in India had trained me to stand heat better than cold, but everybody was out of town, and I yearned for the glades of the New Forest or the shingle of South Sea. But to Sherlock Holmes. Neither the country nor the sea presented the slightest attraction. He loved to lie in the very centre of five millions of people, with his filaments stretching out and running through them, responsive to every little rumour or suspicion of unsolved crime. At this moment, Holmes was too absorbed for conversation, reading and re-reading a letter he had received by the morning post. The newspaper offered nothing of interest, so I tossed it aside, leaned back into my chair, and fell into a brown study. Suddenly, my companion's voice broke in upon my thoughts. You are right, Watson. It does seem a most preposterous way of settling a dispute. Yes, most preposterous. What? Well, just a moment. What? What is this, Holmes? <laughs> I mean, that—that that is precisely what I was thinking. It's beyond anything which I could have imagined. Oh,、uh, well, do you remember that some little time ago I read you the passage in one of Poe's sketches, in which a close reasoner follows the unspoken thoughts of his companion? Yes, yes, I, I recall. It seemed a mere tour de force by the author. And on my remarking, I was constantly in the habit of doing the same thing. You expressed incredulity. Yeah, oh no, 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 I'm, I'm sure I never made such a remark. Or perhaps not with your tongue, my dear Watson, but certainly with your eyebrows. So when I saw you throw down your paper, which drew my attention to you, I was very happy to have the opportunity of reading off the train of thought you'd entered upon, and eventually of breaking into it. But in the example you read to me, the reasoner drew his conclusions from the actions of the man whom he observed. Now, now, if I remember correctly, he he stumbled over a heap of stones and looked up at the stars and so on. I mean, what clues can I have given you? Just <laughs> seated quietly in my chair.、Oh, you do yourself an injustice. The features are given to man as the means by which he shall express his emotions. Yours are faithful servants. What do you mean to say that you? Read my train of thoughts from my features, and especially your eyes. Can you recall how your reverie commenced?、Um, no, no, I cannot. Well, then let me tell you. Your eyes fixed themselves on the unframed portrait of Henry Ward Beecher, which stands upon the top of your books.、Huh. Then you glanced up at the wall, and your meaning was obvious.、Hmm? You were thinking that if the portrait were framed, it would just cover that bare space. And correspond with General Gordon's picture over there. You have followed me exactly. So far, I could hardly have gone astray.、Uh, but now your eyes and your thoughts went back to Beecher.、Huh? I was well aware you could not recall his career without thinking of the mission which he undertook during the Civil War. Yes, yes, yes. When a moment later your eyes wandered away from the picture, I suspected that your mind had now turned to the Civil War itself. Yes, you are perfectly correct.、Uh, at first, you thought of its gallantry,、uh, but then. Then you grew sadder. You shook your head. Your hand stole towards your old wound. A smile quivered upon your lips. 
The ridiculous side of this method of settling international questions had forced itself upon your mind. At this point, I agreed with you that it was preposterous. Your deductions are absolutely correct. <laughs> and yet now you've explained it, I, I confess I am as amazed as before. <laughs> well, it was very superficial, my dear Watson, I assure you. I should not have intruded had you not shown some incredulity the other day. Well, I shall not do so again. Ah, yes. But I have here a little problem which may prove more difficult of solution than my small essay in thought reading. Ah, does that uh, letter herald a new case, then? The true herald was the newspaper. Tell me, did you observe the small paragraph referring to the remarkable contents of a packet sent through the post to Miss Cushing of Cross Street, Croydon? No, no I saw nothing. Oh, well, then you overlooked it. Uh, just pass it across. I'll find it for you. Yes. Here, under the heading, A Gruesome Packet. The article told how Miss Cushing had been made the victim of what seemed to be a revolting practical joke. The packet that came through the post contained a cardboard box filled with coarse salt. On emptying this, Miss Cushing was horrified to find two human ears, apparently quite freshly severed. The box had been sent from Belfast the morning before with no indication of the sender. The matter was the more mysterious as Miss Cushing, a maiden lady of fifty, had led a most retired life. Some years previously, however, she had resided in Penge and let apartments in her house to three young medical students. As she had been obliged to get rid of them on account of their noisy habits, the outrage could have been perpetrated by one of them who owed her a grudge and who hoped to frighten her by sending her these relics of the dissecting rooms. So much for the Daily Chronicle. Now, for the letter from the police. Ah, uh, our old friend Lestrade, eh? <laughs> I think this case is very much in your line, Mr. Holmes. We are finding a little difficulty in getting anything to work on. Oops. We have, of course, wired to the Belfast Post Office, but they have no means of identifying this particular parcel. The box is a half-pound box of honeydew tobacco and does not help in any way. The medical student theory still appears to me to be the most feasible. Mm. But if you should have a few hours to spare, I should be very happy to see you out here. Well, what do you say, Watson? Can you rise superior to the heat and run down to Croydon with me on the off chance of a case for your annals? I was longing for something to do. Oh, you shall have it, then. Be so good as to ring for our boots and tell them to order a cab. A shower of rain fell while we were in the train, and the heat was far less oppressive when we reached Croydon. Holmes had wired ahead, and the strayed met us at the station. Morning, Mr. Holmes. Doctor. Morning. Good of you to come. Uh, would you be prepared to walk? It's only five minutes to cross street. Yes. It was a long street of two-storey brick houses with whitened stone steps and little groups of aproned women gossiping at the doors. When we arrived at Miss Cushing's house, we were ushered into the front room where she was sitting. They are in the outhouse, those dreadful things. I wish that you would take them away altogether. So I shall, Miss Cushing. I only kept them here until my friend, Mr. Holmes, should have seen them in your presence. Why in my presence, sir? In case he wished to ask any questions. Oh, what is the use of asking me questions when I tell you I know nothing whatever about it? Quite so, madam. 
I have no doubt you've been annoyed more than enough already over this business. Indeed I have, sir. I am a quiet woman and I live a retired life. I won't have those things in here, Mr Lestrade. If you wish to see them, you must go to the outhouse. That was a small shed in the narrow garden which ran behind the house. Lestrade went in and brought out all the articles for Holmes to examine, and we sat down on a bench at the end of the path while he did so. This string is exceedingly interesting. What do you make of it, Lestrade? It has been tarred, precisely. Mm. It's a piece of tarred twine. Anything else? Um, uh, Miss Cushing has cut the cord with a scissors. Yes, that's important. Oh, I cannot see the importance. Well, it lies in the fact that the knot is left intact, and that this knot is of a peculiar character. It's very neatly tied. I had already made a note to that effect. So much for the string, then. Now, the uh, wrapper. Mm -hmm. Brown paper with a... Yes, a distinct smell of coffee. Really? Oh, so there is. And um, a dress printed in rather straggling letters with Croydon originally spelt with an I. Mm -hmm. The parcel was directed by a man, and the printing is distinctly masculine, of limited education and unacquainted with the town of Croydon. So far, so good. And now for the honeydew box and these very singular enclosures. The two ears were embedded in rough salt of the quality used for preserving hides. Holmes took them out and examined them carefully before returning them to the box. You have observed, of course, that the ears are not a pair. Yes. Mm. But if this were the practical joke of some students from the dissecting room, it would be as easy to send two odd ears as a pair. It would, but this is not a practical joke. Are you sure of that? The presumption is strongly against it. Watson? Well, these have been cut off with a blunt instrument, which would hardly happen if a student had done it. And bodies in the dissecting rooms are injected with preservative fluid, and these ears bear no sign of it. Precisely. Again, carbolic or rectified spirits would be the preservatives which would suggest themselves to a medical mind, uh, certainly not rough salt. I repeat that there is no practical joke here. We are investigating a serious crime. Oh, there are objections to the joke theory, no doubt. But there are much stronger reasons against the other. We know that this woman has led a respectable life here and in Penge for the last 20 years. Why on earth should a criminal send her proofs of his guilt? Especially as, unless she is the most consummate actress... She understands as little of the matter as we do. That is the problem which we have to solve. Ah. For my part, I shall set about it by presuming that my reasoning is correct. So, a double murder has been committed. Hmm. One of these ears is a woman's. Small, finely formed, and pierced for an earring. The other is a man's. Sunburned, discoloured... And also pierced for an earring. These two people must be presumed dead, or we should have heard their story by now. If these two people were murdered, who but the murderer would have sent this sign of his work to Miss Cushing? The sender of the package is certainly the man we want. But I repeat, Mr Holmes, he has no reason for sending Miss Cushing this package. We must have. To tell her the deed was done, perhaps. Or to pain her. But in that case, she knows who it is. Well, I don't believe she has any idea. No, I agree with you. Oh. If she knew, why call the police in if she wished to shield the criminal? 
But if she does not wish to shield him, she will give his name. Exactly. That's why I I have a few questions to ask, Miss Cushion. Ah. In that case, I shall leave you here, for I have some other business on hand. You will find me at the police station, gentlemen. We shall look in on our way to the train. A moment later, Holmes and I were back in the front room, where Miss Cushing was still quietly sewing. I am convinced, sir, that this matter is a mistake, and that the parcel was never meant for me at all. I have not an enemy in the world, as far as I know, so why should anyone play me such a trick? I'm coming to be of the same opinion, Miss Cushing. I think it is more than probable... He paused, and I was surprised on glancing round to see that he was staring with singular intentness at the lady's profile. Surprise and satisfaction were both for an instant to be read upon his eager face, though when she glanced round to find out the cause of his silence, he had become as demure as ever. Miss Cushing, there were one or two questions. Oh, I am weary of questions. You have two sisters, I believe. How could you know that? Oh, the portrait photograph, of course. One of the three ladies is undoubtedly yourself, while the others are so exceedingly like you that there could be no doubt of the relationship. Yes, those are my sisters, Sarah and Mary. And this second portrait is also of one of your younger sisters. Uh, yes, taken at Liverpool. Oh. With her in the company of a man who, by his uniform, is a steward. I observed that she was unmarried at the time. You are very quick at observing. It is my trade. Well, you are quite right. But Mary was married to Jim Brownell a few days afterwards. He was on the South American line when that was taken, but he was so fond of her that he couldn't abide to leave her for so long, and he got into the Liverpool and London boats. Do you know which one? Oh, well, the May Day when last I heard. Like most people who lead a lonely life, Miss Cushing was shy at first, but ended up by becoming extremely communicative. We were told many details about her brother-in-law, the steward. That a little drink was enough to send him mad. That he had quarrelled with Sarah. That his wife, Miss Cushing's other sister, Mary, had stopped writing. So there was no way of knowing how things were going. Holmes and I listened attentively, throwing in a question from time to time. About your second sister, Sarah? Yes? I wonder... Since you are both maiden ladies, that you do not keep house together. Oh, you don't know Sarah's temper, or you would wonder no more. I did try when I came to Croydon, and she lived here until about two months ago. Why did you part? Well, I don't want to say a word against my own sister, but well, she was always meddlesome and hard to please with Sarah. Uh, you say that she quarrelled with your Liverpool relations? yes. Though they were the best of friends at one time. Why, she went up there to live to be near them. And now she has no word hard enough for Jim Browner and his drinking and his bad ways. Do you know of any cause for a quarrel? I suspect he'd caught her meddling and given her a bit of his mind. And that was the start of it. Thank you, Miss Cushing. Goodbye. Oh, goodbye. And I'm very sorry that you should have been troubled. Goodbye. A simple case, Watson. Yeah, oh, really? Mm, but there have been one or two very instructive details in connection with it. Mm -hmm. How do you that note you made of Sarah Cushing's address? Uh, yes, it's um, New Street, Wallington. Yeah, very good. Uh, uh, cabby! 
Uh, we must strike while the iron is hot. Yes. Uh, uh, jump in, Watson. New Street, Wallington, cabby, and just pull up at the telegraph office as you pass. At the telegraph office, Holmes sent off a short wire and then lay back in the cab with his hat tilted over his nose until we pulled up at a house not unlike the one we had just quitted. Uh, wait, please, cabby. Holmes had his hand upon the door knocker when the door opened and a grave young gentleman in black appeared. Is Miss Cushing at home? Miss Sarah Cushing is here, but she is extremely ill. Oh, what is the matter? She has been suffering since yesterday from brain symptoms of great severity. Will we be able to speak to her? As her medical advisor, I cannot possibly take the responsibility of allowing anyone to see her. <laughs> I should recommend you to call again in ten days. Goodbye to you. Well, if we can't, we can't. Mm. Well, perhaps she could not or would not have told you very much. I did not wish her to tell me anything, I only wanted to look at her. Hmm? However, I think I've got all that I want. Uh, cabby, uh, drive us to some decent hotel, would you, uh, where we may have some lunch. When we reached the police station in the afternoon, Lestrade was waiting for us. Telegram for you, Mr. Holmes. Ah, it is the answer. Uh, that's all right. Have you found out anything? I've found out everything. What? You're joking. I was never more serious in my life. A shocking crime has been committed, and I think I've now laid bare every detail of it. And the criminal? Holmes scribbled a few words upon the back of one of his visiting cards and threw it over to Lestrade. That is the name. Well. Uh, but you cannot effect an arrest until tomorrow night at the earliest. I don't know what to say, Mr. Holmes. I should prefer that you do not mention my name at all in connection with the case, as I choose to be associated only with those crimes which present some difficulty in their solution. <laughs> uh, come on, Watson. In our rooms at Baker Street that night, Holmes and I discussed the investigation in more detail. It is one of those cases where we are compelled to reason backward from effects to causes. I've written to Lestrade asking him to supply us with the details which are now wanting and which he will only get after he has secured his man. Can he be safely trusted to do as you have asked? Oh, yes. Although he is absolutely devoid of reason, he is as tenacious as a bulldog when he at once understands what he has to do. Mm. Your case is not complete, then? It is complete in essentials. We know who the author of this revolting business is, although one of the victims still escapes us. Of course, you have formed your own conclusions. Well, I presume that this uh, Jim Browner, the steward of a Liverpool boat, is the man whom you suspect. It is more than a suspicion. Yet I cannot see anything save very vague indications. On the contrary, nothing could be more clear. Let me run over the principal steps. What did we see first? Uh, a very placid and respectable lady who seemed quite innocent of any secret and a portrait which showed she had two sisters. It instantly flashed across my mind that the box might have been meant for one of these. Uh, what then? Well, you went into the garden and examined the box and its contents. The string was of the quality used by sailmakers, and at once a whiff of the sea was perceptible in our investigation. The knot was one which is popular with sailors. The male ear was pierced for an earring, 
which is much more common among sailors than landsmen. And the parcel had been posted at a port. So I was certain that all the actors in the tragedy were to be found among our seafaring classes. Then there was the address on the packet. Mm, Miss S. Cushing. Now, that could just as easily have been Sarah. Uh, Since until recently the address for both had been the same, it was obvious how the mistake had occurred and for whom the packet was meant. Yes, but what was it that made you come suddenly to a stop when we went back in to talk to Miss Cushing? Well, as a medical man, you are aware, Watson, that there is no part of the body which varies so much as the human ear. Each one is, as a rule, quite distinctive, yes. I had therefore examined the ears in the box carefully and noted their anatomical peculiarities. Imagine my surprise, then, when, on looking at Miss Cushing, I perceived that her ear corresponded exactly with the female ear I had just inspected. Good Lord. Ah, so the likelihood was that the victim was a close-blood relation. Exactly. Hmm. The more we talked about Miss Cushing's family, the more the matter began to straighten itself out wonderfully. We had learned of the existence of the steward, an impulsive man of strong passions. You remember that he threw up what must have been a very superior birth in order to be nearer his wife. Yes, yes, and a subject, too, to fits of drinking. Mm. And we had every reason to believe that his wife had been murdered, and that a man, uh, presumably a seafaring man, had been murdered at the same time. Jealousy, of course, at once suggests itself as a motive. But why should these proofs of the deed be sent to Miss Sarah Cushing? Probably because during her residence in Liverpool she had some hand in bringing about the events which led to the tragedy. Note, too, that Belfast, where the packet was posted, is one of the ports of call of the shipping line. Mm. But uh, there is a second possible solution. Mm? An unsuccessful lover might have killed Mr. and Mrs. Browner so that the male ear belonged to the husband. True. There were many grave objections to that theory, but it was conceivable. I therefore sent up a telegram to my friend Algar of the Liverpool Force and asked him to find out if Mrs. Browner was at home and if Browner had departed in the Mayday. And the visit to Sarah Cushing? I admit I was curious, in the first place, to see how far the family ear had been reproduced in her. Then, of course, she might give us very important information. Mm, Certainly her attack of brain fever suggests that she knows the truth, since it dates from shortly after the arrival of the packet. She could not have failed to hear about it when all Croydon was ringing with it. However, we were independent of her help with the answers Algar sent. Mrs. Browner had not been seen for three days, and her neighbours believed she had gone south to see her relatives. And Browner had sailed? Yes. And his ship is due in the Thames tomorrow night, when it will be met by the obtuse and resolute Lestrade. Two days later, the inspector called on us in Baker Street to report on the success, as he put it, of our theory... I found the captain had already removed Browner from his duties. He had been acting in such an extraordinary manner during the voyage. Did he resist arrest? No. He held his hands out quietly enough for the derbies. And when we got him down to the station, he asked Lee straight away to make a statement. You can hang me, or you can leave me alone. I don't care a plug which you do. Oh, really? I tell you, I've not shut an eye in sleep since I did it. And I don't believe I ever will again until I get past all waking. Sometimes it's his face, but most generally it's hers. He looks frowning, but she has a kind of surprise on her face. 
Aye. She might well be surprised when she read death on a face that seldom looked anything but love on her before. But it was Sarah's fault. And made the curse of a broken man put a blight on her. And set the blood rotting in her veins. Why should he blame Sarah, Cushing? It seems that while he loved Mary, Sarah loved him. Until, I suppose, that love turned to hatred. Once she had realised she was not able to supplant her sister in his affections. Ah, that's how he explained it, yes. And the form that hatred took was to turn the wife from the husband. I began to find her. There was a change in, in Mary. In what way? She became suspicious. Wanting to know where I'd been, what I was doing, who my letters were from, and a thousand such follies. Sarah and Mary were just inseparable. And I can see now how she was plotting and scheming, poisoning my wife's mind against me. But I couldn't understand it at the time. So I just began to drink again. Mm. Mary had some reason to be disgusted with me now. Then Alec Fairbairn chipped in. Who's this Fairbairn? Dashing, swaggering chap. Good company, I won't deny it. And wonderful polite ways with him for a sailor. For a month, he was in and out of my house. And never once did it cross my mind that harm might come from him. Then what made you suspicious? Only a, a little thing. I walked into the parlour, unexpected. And there was a, a light of welcome on my wife's face. When she saw me, it faded into a look of disappointment. That was enough. There was no one but Alec Fairbairn whose steps she could have mistaken for mine. What was Sarah's involvement with this man Fairbairn? Ostensibly, he was coming to the house to see Sarah. What did Browner do? Well, at this stage, he warned that Fairbairn was never to visit the house again. Shortly after that, Sarah moved out to live two streets away and let lodgings. His wife often went to visit her sister, and Browner was convinced Fairbairn was there. Indeed, on one occasion, he broke in on them. Fairbairn escaped over the garden wall. But that situation eased when Sarah moved back to the south. Mm -hmm. She found she could make no living. Then what prompted the final tragedy? Ah, Browner was due to be away for seven days. But some cargo broke loose and caused some damage that brought the ship back into port. And he saw his wife and Fairbairn together. Yes. He followed them until he saw them hire a boat and went after them in another boat. It was just as if they'd been given into my hands. There was a bit of a haze and you could not see more than a few hundred yards when I caught up with them. There was a haze, like a curtain, all around us. I crushed his head like an egg with my oar. I would have spared her, but she threw her arms round him, calling out, Alec. So I struck again. And by the Lord, if Sarah had been there, she should have joined them. Then I pulled out my knife. Yes. Ah, a melancholy story. Mm. What happened to the bodies, Lestrade? He tied them to the boat and stove it in so that it sank. Thinking the owner of the boat would believe they had drifted out to sea and been lost. Mm -hmm. Browner rejoined his ship, 
and sent the package the next day from Belfast. Once Lestrade had left us, Holmes sank back in his chair with a solemn expression on his face. What is the meaning of it, Watson? What object is served by this circle of misery and violence and fear? Well, it must tend towards some end, or else our universe is ruled by chance, which is unthinkable. Yes, but what end? There is the great perennial problem, and human reason, my dear Watson, is as far from an answer as ever. Cardboard Box by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, Roy Marsden played Sherlock Holmes, John Moffat, Dr. Watson, Steve Hodgson, Inspector Lestrade, Bill Monks, Jim Browner, Andrew Branch, the Doctor, and Pauline Letts, the unfortunate Miss Susan Cushing. The music was written by Joss Sandler and played by Joss Sandler and Elizabeth Fellows. The Cardboard Box was dramatised by Grant Eustace and directed by Michael Bartlett for Daedalus Productions.